Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As we are still getting this new year underway, we are considering in this message series the unique assignments that God has given to us as a church. We are calling these assignments God Dreams. Here's our definition of a God Dream. It is a vision of the future that begins first in the mind of God and then is given to us. Now, we all, we all dream about the future, especially as the new year begins, but we were created for more than just me dreams. We were created also for God dreams. And church is the primary place where God calls us to dream his dreams and then work together to see those dreams become reality. Whenever God gives us a vision of the future, it is presented inside of a, a frame. In other words, it has limits to it. And that's because while God's dreams are obviously big, we are limited. And so God gives us a doable part of the future that he envisions. Now, the frame that marks these doable limits, like every frame, has four sides to it. And the first side on our frame is our mission. And this answers the what question. What are we doing? It's just a simple statement that keeps us on track and makes sure that we are doing what it is that God has assigned for us to do. And here's our simple statement. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. We have lots of experience with being broken, and therefore we want this broken community and world to experience the transformation that comes from following Jesus Christ. So that's our mission. That answers the what question. The next side of the frame that we're looking at now is the values side. This answers the why question. Why are we doing it? Turns out that God is concerned not only with what we do, but also with why we do it. What we do is kind of like the tip of the iceberg. We talked about this last week. Why we do it, though, that's the major part. That's the 90% below the waterline, below the surface, that uh, cannot be seen by other people. And oftentimes, we don't even really have a clear idea of all that's going on below the surface. But it turns out that this below-the-surface why part of us is what really drives us over time. We can do a lot of different things on the top, but we will do what's really below the surface over the long haul, the long period of time. And so why is very important. And since this is God's dream, we need to ask him what it is that he values. What are the whys that, that he wants us to have as we accomplish the mission that he's given to us? And as a church, we have uh, adopted five values phrases that help us continually align our hearts with what it is that God values. We looked at the first one last week, and that is us for them. Just quickly, what this is saying is we are not like a, a club that exists exclusively for the benefit of its members. There are benefits of being a part of this church or any church. But the real purpose that we have is for those who are not here yet. We are us for them. In his last words here on earth, Jesus told us to go and make disciples. That's why we are us for them. The next thing we are to do after that, Jesus says in his last words to his disciples and therefore to us, is that after having made the decision to follow Jesus, we are supposed to work on helping people and ourselves learn how to obey everything that Jesus commanded. In other words, we're to grow. Having made this decision to follow Christ, we are now to grow in Christ. And so the next four value statements address our understanding of some critical elements that are required in order for us to grow. We're going to look at two of them this morning. 
Now, when our kids were young, there was a room in my parents' basement that contained a very important record of our family history. And every time we visited my parents, the record was examined and new entries were made. And the record contained the height of every grandchild marked on the wall uh, in pencil and sometimes in ink. And our kids were, especially when they were in growth spurts, they, were, they could hardly wait to get to my parents' house and run to the downstairs room and measure themselves and see how much they'd grown since our last visit. You probably have something like this, maybe in your grandparents' house or maybe in your house. And birth marks the beginning of life. But after that, the focus shifts towards growth. Now, parents know that growth doesn't just automatically happen. It takes a lot of work to provide for and to build the kind of environment in which kids can thrive, in which they can grow. Now, as a parent, the initial focus is usually on physical growth, you know, making sure there's enough food being ingested and measuring um, the weight and the length and all those kinds of things. But pretty early on, the, the shift kind of uh, shifts a little bit differently, and parents realize that the biggest and most important challenge really is the internal growth. It's what's going on on the inside that's, that's the big concern. Whenever someone decides to follow Jesus Christ, Jesus says they are born again. That's one of the phrases he uses to describe that. In other words, there, there's new life. There's life from heaven. There's eternal life that is birthed in them. And what that means is that they now have the genetics to grow in this life, to grow in godliness, to grow in the way that God has designed them to grow. But genetics are never enough, whether it's soul genetics or physical genetics. All growth, whether it's physical or internal, depends on the right kind of environment in order for it to occur. In John chapter 15, Jesus identifies the crucial element that we need to grow if we've made the decision to follow him. What he says is we must now remain in him. Here's how he says it in John 15, verse 5. He uses this image for growth. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, the evidence of growth. Apart from me, it's not going to happen. You can do nothing. So our soul, like every living thing, is designed to grow within the framework, within the boundaries of the environment that it is dependent on. You know, the reason that bears, for the most part, stay in forests and tarantulas, for the most part, stay in deserts is not because there are fences that are keeping them in those places. It's because those are the environments in which they are dependent on. And if they venture outside of those environments, they won't find the food that they need, and they'll find uh, challenges that will stop their growth and eventually cause them to die. We are also designed for an environment. We have two kinds of life. We have a physical life and we have an inside life, a soul. Our bodies are designed and dependent on this planet, the atmosphere and, and the climate of this planet. And our souls were created to be dependent on God. But we've all separated from God in different ways and decided to kind of run our own life and do our own thing. And so we now find ourselves in a soul hostile environment. It's kind of like living in outer space. You know, we're dependent on oxygen, but if you're in outer space, you're far from oxygen. Right now, there are three people living in outer space. And they're doing it because they're not just floating in space, they're living on the International Space Station. Here's a picture of the station in orbit. The cost so far of this space station is $160 billion. The ongoing cost 
is $7 million per person per day. That's expensive rent to maintain life in space. It takes a lot of commitment to sustain life in that hostile environment. And our souls are in a a similar kind of situation. We are designed for God's presence, but we are now living in a sinful world that's separated from him. And we have hearts now that have separated from him that are also sinful. So what God did is at great cost to himself, much more than $160 billion, at great cost to himself, he created a place where we can live and grow on the inside, an environment. He sent his son to die the death that we all deserve from the separation and made a way for us to access eternal life, soul oxygen, so to speak. It's called being in Christ. And so we are saved, we are rescued when we accept Christ. But we grow, we flourish on the inside as we remain in Christ. We remain committed to his ways. But commitment isn't like a switch that we flip, like a light switch, and it just remains on until we come back and flip it back. Commitment is much more dynamic than just the initial decision. It turns out every commitment we make goes through a cycle. And in order to remain in Christ, we must understand this cycle, the commitment cycle. There's four parts to this cycle, and we're going to look at these this morning. And we have two phrases of value, two value phrases that capture the four parts of this cycle. The first phrase captures the first two parts of the cycle, and here's the phrase, space to investigate. We need freedom and space to investigate this commitment. Commitments that last must be formed, must be made in the environment of freedom. And that's because the first element in the commitment cycle is desire. It's desire. Now, if you're taking notes, you'll see the bullet points for these four parts of the cycle, but I'm going to present them to you on the screen in the graphic, in the way that they they tend to flow in this cycle. So desire is the first element of commitment. Commitments that remain begin with the simple desire to make them. Quite simply, we want to do this. That's the beginning of of any long-term commitment. Because commitments can't be forced. Commitments have to be freely chosen. After uh, dating my wife for about eight months, I was ready to ask her to marry me. I was getting serious, and I thought we were kind of at that point, and I thought, you know, I, I better check with her, just kind of make sure that we're all on the same page here before I pop the question. I, I don't want that question to go badly. And so I asked her what she was thinking, and this is what she said, and I quote, I'm 50-50. <laughs> I, was, I was shocked, 50-50. And then to go on to make sure I was clear on what that meant, 50-50 meant, she said, well, some days... I really think you might be the one. And then about the same number of days, I don't think you are. <laughs> now, that was not where I was. I, I was, I was 90-10. I mean, probably, honestly, I was about 100%. I was, I was really sure she was the one for me. So I was, well, I was set back. I was, <laughs> honestly, I was kind of devastated. I still have in my mind the scene that we were walking when she said 50-50. It's like it's burned in my brain forever. I'll, I'll never forget what was going on all around me when I heard those words. So what did I do? Did I ramp up the pressure and try to close the deal that night? 
No. That would have backfired. And even if it hadn't, even if I had been able to somehow put enough pressure or sweeten the deal in some way where she would say, okay, yes, that wouldn't be a commitment that probably would have lasted. And the reason is because God created us to be free. And if our freedom is tampered with in the making of a decision, the foundation of that decision is weakened. And what happens when the foundation is weakened because there isn't freedom or space to investigate, then when the pressure comes from making that commitment, which is always true after commitment, there's always ramifications and pressure that comes. And when the pressure is put on top of that foundation, that weakened foundation cracks and we end up bailing on the commitment that we made. So what I did is with my wife, I prayed. I asked God to turn her heart. I mean, I just was honest. I said, God, I I really want to marry this woman, but she's 50-50. So (laughs) if you could convince her, maybe 60-40 and 70-30, we could move in the right direction, I would really appreciate that. So I prayed. I gave her space. We, We continued to date, and I didn't bring it up a lot. I mean, every time I saw her, I didn't say, so where are we at now? 55, 45? Have, have I gotten some points this week, or what's it going to take? I mean, I, we didn't talk about that a lot, because I knew that, that that would put pressure, and she needed space to investigate. So four months later, she was at 100%. We got engaged. Then we got married. Now, I say this because it's the same with our commitment to, to follow Jesus Christ. This is not something for the 50-50 crowd. This is not for those who are looking for a spiritual hobby or maybe a, in, a kind of an eternal insurance policy for the next life. This is not for people who are feeling really bad and thought, well, you know, let me try this. Maybe it'll make me feel better. We'll see how it goes. That's not the nature of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. This is for those who, in freedom, have really considered the evidence that surround the life of Jesus Christ, and they have become convinced that what he said about himself and the evidence that he gave means he really was God in flesh, and he really can forgive, and he really is worthy of following. And they decide they want to do this. In John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to a very large crowd. We don't know how large, but it's in the thousands. And what was happening at this point in his life is his popularity was, was on the rise. But the reason for the rise in popularity was the miracles he was doing. He was kind of becoming a traveling miracle show, and people would come from all over just to, maybe he's going to heal a blind person again, or maybe he's going to make some more food out of just a little bit of food. But everyone was traveling to see what Jesus might do. And he knows that that's no reason to make a real decision about him. And so he does something that that really shocks the crowd in John chapter 6. He announces that his arrival from heaven is a more important event than when God sent manna from heaven to feed the people of Israel. Now, you have to understand, at this time in Jewish history, those were fighting words. Because there was nothing in their history that was more sacred and more important to them than when God rescued them from slavery in Egypt and fed them in the desert every day. And for Jesus to say, yeah, that's good, but me coming here, that's even more important. Now, Jesus was right, but for the crowd that was just there for the miracles, for the crowd that wasn't really convinced who Jesus was, that was offensive. Why would Jesus do that? Well, he wanted to filter out those who were tagging along for the miracle show. 
from those who really wanted to follow him and were convinced about who he was. So a large number of people just started grumbling and got upset about that and left. So rather than grow the numbers, which you would think that would be the goal, Jesus seemed to be interested in thinning the crowd. And so it turns out the disciples must have been bothered by this because he turns to the 12 disciples and he gives them an out. He says, look, you're you're welcome to leave too if, if you want to. Here's what he says in John 6, 66 through 68. From this time, many of his disciples, speaking of the larger following, turned back and they no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We're not going anywhere. So the 50-50 crowd turned back at this point. They were not ready to make the commitment, but Peter was. He apparently by this time had seen enough and had heard enough. He had taken the time to investigate Jesus and was convinced that only he could give eternal life. Our goal here at Seabreeze is to give everyone space to really think about this, to investigate this. To logically, we want to logically present the evidence for Christ and to explain what it really means to follow him so people can make informed decisions without any pressure. And because of that, we absolutely love honest questions. The reason is because that's how rational people make important decisions. If you don't have any questions, you're not thinking. If you have an honest question, ask it. Try to get it answered. And then freely make a decision. You know, I used to think that if someone was really excited about Jesus, that must mean automatically they're very committed to him. What I've learned is they're just excited. They may be committed, but excitement doesn't always equal commitment. And that's because desire is just one part of the commitment cycle. There has to be the desire. There has to be the freedom in which to say, you know what, I want to do this. I want to do this. But the next part of the commitment cycle is you decide. You go from desire to decision. This is the point at which you cross the line and you state your commitment. This is what I'm going to do. In this case, you state your commitment to Christ. You do this publicly. For my wife and I, that was on March 16th, 1985. That's when we were married, publicly. The public event that marks the decision to follow Christ is baptism. This is what Jesus told us to do. This is why we're doing a baptism next Sunday. Now, the decision to follow Jesus often precedes that, but this is the moment in which you go public. And if you've made this decision, but you've never gone public, I would encourage you to go public with this. Now, if your parents made this decision for you when you were little, that's fine. But this is your call. This is something that you must do in freedom. So if you've never publicly declared your commitment, I would encourage you to consider being baptized next Sunday. But baptism isn't the only moment that we go public with our decision to follow Jesus Christ. It it often spills out in a public way. And Peter faced one of these moments on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. Jesus had told his disciples on that evening, he told them about his pending arrest and that they would all leave him in order to save their skin. Peter spoke up. 
Because you see, he not only had the desire to follow Jesus, he had made the firm decision to follow Jesus. And so this is what he says in Matthew 26, 35, that Peter declared, no, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said, yeah, what he said, us too. So what happened? Well, you may know the story. Peter and the other disciples did exactly what Jesus had predicted. In Peter's case, Jesus had gone on to say, Peter, not only are you going to die, but you're going to do it three times. He gave him the timing. And it happened exactly like Jesus said. Why? I mean, did Peter lie earlier in John 6 when he told Jesus that he believed he was the only one that had the word of life? No, I don't think Peter was lying. He seemed to be fully convinced at that point. So did Peter not mean what he said just 12 hours, hours earlier when he had told Jesus that he would rather die than disown him? No, it, I mean, it appears as you read it, I, I think Peter really meant what he said. I think he really intended, if necessary, to die with Jesus. He felt that, that strong of a commitment to Jesus. So what happened? The mistake was that Peter had thought that just because he had decided and felt very strongly about his commitment, that that was enough, that his commitment was secure. But Jesus knew that it wasn't. And that's because Jesus knows the human heart. He knows that the next step in the human commitment cycle requires support, primarily from a community. And this is our second value statement that I want to look at this morning. Growth requires community. If we're going to grow, we need help. The reason is that the very next step in the commitment cycle after decision is decay. This always happens. You decide, you, you have a desire, and you decide to make a commitment, and from the moment you make a commitment, if you don't do anything else, it begins to decay. It always happens. In 2001, the 130-ton Mir space station was guided into a controlled crash in the Pacific Ocean. The reason was that after 14 years in space, the thing was falling apart, and the Russians didn't have enough money to keep it going, keep it in orbit. The plan right now is for the International Space Station to crash into the ocean in five years, in 2024. And the reason is because space stations, once built, don't perpetuate themselves. They must, they must be maintained. They must be supported. That's that $7 million per person per day thing. The orbit decays. The oxygen is depleted. Electricity is used, and the equipment wears out. Why? Well, that's life is being artificially supported. Without resupply, the hostile environment will eventually win. The same thing is true of a commitment to Christ. It must be supported in this hostile environment. The hostile environment, again, is a broken world with broken people, us being a part of that. We have sinful hearts drawn to do what is wrong. We live in a broken and sinful world that pulls us down. Before dawn, Peter strongly denied even knowing Jesus, not because he had been insincere about his decision to never do that, but because he had wrongly assumed that his intense desire would overcome the hostile environment that he was getting ready to go into. 
He had vastly overestimated his strength and vastly underestimated the environment. Now, Jesus knew this was going to happen, obviously. He knew better. And so right after Peter makes this, I'll die with you statement of commitment. I mean, that's a decision. Right after he said that, Jesus showed Peter how to prevent the decay that was going to happen in just 12 hours. And what he says, in essence, to Peter is, Peter, if you're really serious about this, you're going to need some help. You can't pull this off on your own. So this is what he says. Matthew 26, 41, he tells Peter and two other disciples to come with him. And he tells them, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Why? Just kind of a spiritual exercise? No, no, no. The spirit is willing. I mean, you guys are very willing. The problem is, body is weak. Intentions are here, follow through, down here. Spirit is willing, body is weak. Now to us, it seems that all we really need is willingness. You know, we, we want to change in some way. We want to stop worrying so much, or we want to start treating others with compassion, and we want to stop being so angry, or whatever it is. And so we, we just steal our, our hearts, and, and we, we're serious about this, and we feel emotions. We may even shed tears over this, and then we just keep falling down. Why? Weak bodies. Not, not that we don't want to. No, the Spirit is very willing. We want to. It's just we have a hard time pulling it off. Now, Jesus isn't talking about physical body weakness. He's talking about habitual weakness. You see, what our bodies do is our bodies imprint whatever we do and turn what it is that we do repeatedly into habits, patterns of behavior. And it remembers these patterns. And if we try to change these patterns... The body resists. I mean, if you started a new diet this year, you, you discovered this. You know, maybe let's say you're, you're trying to cut sugar. What does your body do when you try to cut sugar? Does your body just say, yeah, I didn't like sugar anyways. Go for it. Oh, no. If you are a typical American and have consumed the amount of sugar that most people do, your body lets you know, hey, 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 what are you doing? I'm not happy. Now, you can retrain it over time, and eventually your body's okay. But, boy, initially, all you have to do is see something with sugar in it, and you start salivating. All you have to do is think about something with sugar in it. Just, oh. That's your body, having been trained by your previous patterns. This is why deciding to change is never enough. Your body needs to be retrained. And so when it comes to our own patterns of sin... We haven't just done deeds of sin. What we have is we've constructed and developed habits of sin that have weakened us. We all have done this. And so we, we just get in certain situations and history kicks in. We start salivating for the wrong thing. And that's why our inside determination can accomplish more in theory than our bodies can in reality. And that's why after trying to do the right thing, many people just give up. I, I can't. I guess I'm not a good Christian. I, I guess I can't do this. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. But you see, it's not willingness that stops us. It's always weakness. And we underestimate, like Peter does, our weakness. And overestimate our intentions. And we, we forget to understand what's being taught here, and that is from the moment they are made, every commitment decays. 
not just a commitment to follow Christ. Every commitment goes into decay. And this is the critical part of the commitment cycle because this is when you and I become aware of how much effort is required and probably how long it's going to take to develop the infrastructure necessary to support this commitment. And this is when we all decide whether or not we're really going to put in the time and effort. The word for this part of the commitment cycle is dedicate. Dedicate. Webster defines dedicate this way. To set apart for sacred use. Sacred, we tend to think sacred is just kind of a religious word. And it does connect with God. But the word sacred just simply means to be set apart for something different. What this is saying is, you build new and different patterns. If you, if you really want to follow Jesus, then you're going to have to carve out new patterns out of your previous life. There's just no way to back up that desire and that decision and counter that decay without dedication, without new patterns, without sacred or different patterns. And this is why Jesus, really, if I could summarize what Jesus was saying to Peter, it would be like this. So Peter... You're so committed to me that you're willing to die for me? Great. But what you need to do now is support that commitment. In order to do that, you're going to have to get together with your fellow disciples. And let's just start here, Peter. Why don't you and the guys, the two other guys, let's just try one hour. If you could just stay awake for one hour and pray for the strength to face what is going to come, you might be able to pull it off. Well, if you've read the story... You know what happens. Jesus comes back, and what are they doing? They're all sleeping. So he tells them again, oh, okay, one hour. We don't know how long, five minutes, 15, 20. Body is weak. Like Peter, we all need help from God and the support of each other. But we just keep falling asleep because the body is weak. It takes time and repeated effort to become stronger. So what begins as a large commitment must always be secured and supported through many smaller ones. And that's a time-consuming and discouraging process. You know, when I committed myself in marriage to my wife, Rebecca, nothing was said to me on that day about patterns of vacuuming, <laughs> patterns of creating and establishing a budget, or all the other many, many things that have now become a part of the infrastructure of our relationship. But they are vitally important. If we're going to be married, we've got to figure out how to budget. We've got to figure out how we're going to maintain things around the house and many other things. And similarly, when I, when I decided to become, become a follower of Jesus Christ, I wasn't at that moment thinking about, okay, what's my plan now for spending time daily with God in the Bible in prayer? I hadn't come up with any plan. I wasn't even thinking about that. I just said, yep, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. But it turns out that was going to be an important part of actually making good on that commitment. I hadn't at that point worked out now, how am I going to memorize verses? What's my plan going to be on that? I hadn't decided, you know, how many times am I going to gather with other followers of Christ in the church? I hadn't decided, okay, now, who is it now that I'm going to be honest with about my struggles and ask them to pray for me? I hadn't done any of this. 
But that and much more has been developed over time and continually needs to be redeveloped over time. And for me, as for most people, usually it comes on the tail end of a period of decay where I've been informed yet once again, you're not as amazing as you thought you were. You're not as strong as you think you are. You're going to need help. You're going to need to re-energize these patterns, these support structures. Now, there is another option at the point of decay. Rather than do the work of dedication, many people decide to detach, to punt on the commitment. As it relates to the church, they just separate themselves from the church, and they, and they try to go it alone. You know, maybe, maybe they're too embarrassed by their failure to really be honest and say, look, I need help. That's always hard. Maybe they just don't want to put in the kind of work it takes to carve out new patterns out of old habits. For whatever the reason is, it never goes well when people try to grow in Christ all by themselves. I've never seen that work. I'm not saying it never does. I've never seen it. In the first Gulf War back in the 90s, I'll never forget this. I remember a reporter asking General Colin Powell what his war strategy was. He was a chairman of the Joint Chiefs back then. And he says this. He said, well, obviously, I can't tell you the details of our, of our war plan to free Kuwait. But I can tell you that it's going to follow along the lines of the strategy that has been true of every war that's ever been fought throughout all of human history. And here's the strategy. Cut them off and then kill them. That's been true of every battle. That's been the strategic goal of every battle, every war. When it comes to the enemy, cut off their supply lines and then destroy them. And I'll never forget when I heard that, I thought, you know, I've never been in combat physically, but boy, I have seen this tactic over and over again in spiritual warfare. First, the enemy just figures out some way to get a follower of Christ to isolate themselves. To just separate. Pull back from the church. Maybe because they get hurt about something and they won't deal with it. Or they get upset about something and they just won't follow. Or they get, this is a big one, they just get too busy. And then as they're appropriately cut off from the supply lines... Then he goes in for the kill. I've seen this over and over again. Growth requires community. We cannot stay committed to Christ alone. And his resources come to us through his body, the church. So 40 days after Peter and the disciples couldn't stay awake for even one hour and pray, Jesus, having been crucified on the cross and risen from the grave, ascends back into heaven. And his last instructions to them were to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. That's all they were told. So what do you do? Well, this is what they did. We're told this in Acts 1 verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Does it sound like they've learned their lesson? I think so. I think Peter, after that, his big takeaway is, all right, <laughs> I'm not as amazing as I thought it was. And I better get together with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and we need to ask God for help. And we need to just do this over and over and over again. So until that Holy Spirit arrives, we're just going to do this. 
We, we are going to, not just every once in a while, we're going to constantly get together and we're going to pray. We're going to ask for help. They learned their lesson. Now, this cycle, this commitment cycle, is a three-dimensional cycle. I've displayed up here just as two dimensions. But, but we don't just go through this cycle once. This cycle, rightly done, you just keep going through this. And it doesn't just keep you going in circles, not making any progress. No, you, you get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in your growth as you go through this cycle. You see, if you stick with your commitment to follow Christ and you develop the infrastructure that's necessary to support that, you're going to grow. And then you will move to the next level of commitment. Something else in your life, God is going to say, okay, now we're going to deal with this. That's going to require a new desire, a new, okay, let's deal with this. And then a new decision related to that. And then that decision is going to be subject to decay. And again, we're going to decide, okay, well, if I'm really going to grow in this, I need to develop some more structure to support that commitment. The key to growth, if you decide to follow Jesus Christ, is do not get stuck. It's so easy to get stuck at any, at any point. You know, sometimes I get stuck in the desire. It's like, yeah, there's a little more investigation before I just say, you know, it's, eh, maybe another year of investigation before I really get serious about this. And you just get stuck. Forever analyzing, which is code for, you don't want to decide. A lot of times you get stuck after decay. It's like, I, I, <laughs> I don't want to carve out the time. I don't, I don't want to ask for help. I, I don't want to pray. I, whatever it is, we just, we just get stuck. So the question I have for all of us in this room is, where are you on this cycle of commitment to Christ? You're somewhere. But what's your next step? If you're stuck, what do you need to do to get moving? I mean, it may be time for you to move from desire to decision. I mean, if you have more questions, then get those answered. But if you've got enough questions answered, and by the way, we'll never have every question answered. You can't make a single commitment if you've got, if the requirement is, I need to be certain. Well, you're not going to decide anything. Maybe you need to move from desire to decision, and maybe you just need to be baptized. Just go public and say, all right, everybody, this is me. I've decided I'm following. Maybe you're in decay, and it's time to develop the next pattern necessary to support your commitment to Christ. Bill Wilson was one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he had managed through great effort to be sober on his own for six months, which is quite an accomplishment for him. But as he tells the story, he was out of town on a business trip, and he failed. He started drinking again. And he was heading for a bar with one thought in his mind. He said, this is all I could think about as I was heading for that bar. So, I need a drink. I need a drink. I need a drink. And as he was heading for that bar, a new thought popped in his mind, and this was the thought. And this is what he said. I don't need a drink. I need another what? Alcoholic. So he called Dr. Smith. And Alcoholics Anonymous was started based on the principles found in the Bible. And I say that story because it parallels with what's revealed in the New Testament. Church is to be the place where we say this. I don't need to sin. I need another sinner. I need help. I don't want to sin again. But if I'm going ha- to make progress, I've got to get around some other sinners. 
Church is not the place where we pretend, okay, we're all perfect, right? Got all dialed in. No, that's the most toxic environment you could be in. Church is to be the place where it's like, you're a sinner? Great. I need some help. Could you pray for me? I'll pray for you. Growth requires community. There's just no getting around it. It takes help from other people to break old attachments and form new ones. Or as Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, good luck. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the clarity of your word that speaks exactly to what we have experienced and gives insight into what, we, what we've experienced and gives direction to what we can do from this point forward. But now, having heard these words, we have all been made to be free. We can go from here and completely forget, do absolutely nothing, head to our Super Bowl events, and by the time Monday comes, it's all gone. That's, that's our freedom. But I pray that you would convict many of us to take the next step, that you would put your finger on that place in our heart where we're stuck, and you would move us to action. We need your help. We are so weak. We ask for your help. We thank you for the help that comes through your body and the support that's offered. Help us to grow. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.